Welcome to Decoding COVID. I'm your host, John Houghton, and this is a podcast where we help everyday people learn the science behind COVID-19. Today, we're going over some of the fundamentals of epidemiology and data modeling, and this is very important to help people not only understand how diseases spread, but we're also going to provide insights on variants with the possibility that they can reinfect and how this can change the picture. So on the line, we have Dr. Stephen Kistler, an epidemiologist with the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Kistler is also co-host of the Pandemic Podcast, along with my friend Matt Botker, and I recommend checking it out. So how are you doing, Dr. Kistler? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so um, my background was actually originally in applied mathematics. Um, got my undergraduate and master's degree at the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, where I studied all sorts of different things related to mathematical biology. But my interest was always in infectious diseases. Uh, so I went on to do my PhD uh, at the University of Cambridge, also in applied math. Um, so a lot of my grounding is really in the mathematical modeling side of infectious disease transmission, which you know, required me to learn a lot about the biology and immunology, but really, you know, fundamentally, my training is as a mathematician. Um, so I ended up coming to Harvard so that I could uh, really get a better grounding in public health, really things that were focused on interventions, you know, practical control of infectious diseases. Uh, sure didn't anticipate that we would see a pandemic within my first two years there. And so that's definitely made things more exciting than I expected. But here we are. So in this episode, we're covering data modeling. So Dr. Kistler, why are models useful? Uh, models are useful from a couple of different angles. Um, I'll speak mainly from the infectious disease context, but this applies to different places where modeling is done as well. You know, for example, we do uh, modeling to predict the weather. Uh, we have mathematical models that are responsible for making forecasts, basically. And so that, that's one area where in infectious diseases, models are really useful too. And you can use mathematical models to essentially simplify the way that a disease spreads. Um, you sort of look at how different people might interact and different you know, contact structures within a population. And then using that, you can you can make forecasts for how many cases you think there will be next week or next month. Um, and depending on the infectious disease and how much we know about it, those forecasts can be better or worse. Um, so that's one type of modeling. Um, but actually, that's not the type of modeling that I'm usually engaged in as much. Usually what I'm doing is more um, what we call mechanistic modeling. So that's taking a look at data that already exists and trying to understand sort of what what caused the data to look like it does? Um, so you can look at a couple of different structures. You know, for example, you can say, you know, maybe maybe transmission is really high among kids, or maybe there's a lot of people who are asymptomatic and spreading disease. Um, maybe the infectious period, the length of time when you could potentially spread the disease, is longer than we expected. And you can take all of those different sort of uh, what we call hypotheses of how the disease spreads, uh, and you can compare them using using mathematics. You can generate simulations. You can do mathematical analysis and figure out which ones are most consistent with the data that we observe. And that allows us to get some information about how the disease actually behaves, um, what's actually behind the way that it's spreading. Um, and so it gives us a deeper understanding of uh, first how the disease behaves. And, and the reason we're interested in that is because ultimately, as epidemiologists, we want to intervene. We want to stop the spread. But to do that, we need to know why it's spreading the way that it is. Now, when models came out, some people complained about modeling, saying it wasn't accurate and that uh, it seemed like Maybe my friends were looking for a model to hit a certain number, but it didn't seem like it was supposed to work like that. Like uh, models were like an earnings forecast that you're supposed to hit. My understanding is that a model is not trying to hit a certain number, but to tell emergency planners how severe an outbreak is going to be so that they can know how far to go with their emergency planning. Uh, do, do you agree with that? 
Yeah, that's right. And, and again, different models have different purposes, but a lot of that, um, I think skepticism about modeling, it really came about because we were asking models to do things that they weren't built to do, or, or, or people were interpreting models in ways that they weren't meant to be interpreted. For example, as forecasting models where we were, we were trying to get a precise measure, but um, people might have interpreted the, this other class of models that is more aimed at getting a rough sense of how the disease behaves and interpreting those as if they were forecast models and saying, well, you know, these, these don't match up. The numbers aren't, aren't right. What's well, like, well, you know, these models weren't built to give you a really precise estimate of the numbers of cases. It was really trying to just calibrate, is it greater than or less than order of magnitude, these kinds of things, which can still be really useful. You know, when you're trying to, uh, when you're, you're trying to intervene in some way to, to put in place some policy aimed at reducing the spread of an infectious disease, um, oftentimes, you know, the, the particular numbers themselves don't particularly matter. Re really what you want to know is like, is, is my hospital going to be overwhelmed and by roughly how much? Um, and you can do a very good job of generating models that answer those sorts of questions, even if they don't, you know, really get right on the dime, how many people, um, entered the ICU. Are models relevant now that we're past the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, so there are a couple of ways where I, I see models being useful. You know, one one area is that we're we're continuing to use the forecast type models, um, and I guess this allows me to sort of circle back towards one of the things that you mentioned, where uh, we can look at individual models and say that they don't match up with with what we expect, that they don't necessarily forecast well. Um, one of the ways that we're fixing that is actually a strategy that we built up uh, for influenza surveillance, which is that you have a lot of different teams generating these forecasting models. And you can actually get even better forecasts if you integrate the models together. If you basically take the simulations and take an average of them in sort of an intelligent way, you sort of like weight the models according to how well they've performed in the past. That allows you to get really good forecasts, actually. And, and that's very similar to what we do with weather modeling as well, is looking at these what we call ensembles of models, multiple different models capturing different types of um, weather patterns. Um, and when you average them together, you get sort of behaviors that no one model could completely capture on its own. So we end up with these uh, ensemble models. And since there are more and more people generating these models, we can get better and better ensembles, which give us better and better forecasts. In a better sense of where COVID nineteen is headed, so so the forecasting really as the as the epidemic has gone on, I think we've shifted um, to some extent from the more mechanistic modeling where we're trying to understand sort of what COVID is and how it spreads to forecasting type modeling where we're trying to get more and more precise and practical measurements of like what's happening in my community. Now, the other thing that's really important about modeling right now is that we of course have the spread of the variants, um, and so essentially what we have is this shift in the in the character of the pandemic. Um, the pandemic is really changing because uh, even though it's still SARS-CoV-2, it's picked up these attributes, these these functions, um, phenotypes, we call them biologically, that, that allows it to behave differently. It makes it more infectious, maybe because it binds to our lung receptors better, or it might have a longer duration of infectiousness. And so by using models, we can figure out, you know, what can we expect from these variants? How quickly are they going to spread? Will they take over? Uh, and what should we do about it? So, so that's really where a lot of the modeling is focused right now. So when a variant comes out, does the modeling, you kind of start over like with the R-naught, it's a greater R-naught and you start from one and then you'd kind of project that out or does it get more complicated? Yeah, it, it depends on, um, 
Well, maybe I can speak more broadly about, you know, what what do we as a community of epidemiologists do when we notice something that could be a variant of concern? So um, the first thing is that you know, maybe you see a lot of spread of COVID in a place that you wouldn't expect. So um, for example, th- this was one of the, the key things in Manaus in Brazil, um, where there was a lot of spread of COVID and we expected there to be a lot of immunity in the population. And then all of a sudden we saw another outbreak. What's, what's happening here. So immediately our attention goes to that to try to explain you know, what, what, what could be going on here. All sorts of different hypotheses then that you can test. One is that maybe there is a new, more infectious variant with a higher reproduction number. Or maybe it has the same reproduction number in some populations, but in this population, it's found a way to get around the immune response. And so that allows it to spread in this population better than the original wild type virus. And so again, you have all of these different reasons why there's this strange phenomenon of spread of SARS-CoV-2 in a place that you wouldn't expect. And that's really when the work gets interesting. So you then go in and do genetic sequencing to see if the virus that's causing this rise in cases is is similar and somehow different from virus circulating elsewhere. Um, and then exactly as you said, we try to measure sort of what we uh, what we consider to be the basic diagnostics of, of infectious diseases, which include the reproduction number, the generation interval, which is the amount of time that you're infectious, basically, and, and how long it is between when you get infected and when you infect someone else. So those are really like the nuts and bolts, the things that we really try to measure to understand what's going on um, with potentially a new variant. And then that, that allows us to distinguish, you know, is, is this actually a new variant of concern? Or is it just um, a, a random unexpected, but, you know, unlikely, but nevertheless possible increase in cases just caused by the normal SARS-CoV-2 that's already spreading. And we can begin to distinguish those things based on all of these different lines of evidence. Wow, that's really good. In order to really understand these things in any decent level of detail, I I feel it's good to get some good definitions. So if you could tell us, what is your definition of R-naught? Yeah, so R-naught, probably the thing that we've heard most about. Um, and one of the things that brings me the most joy that it's, it's entered into sort of the common communication. It's, it's something that we think about as epidemiologists all the time. Um, so the R-naught uh, is the basic reproduction number. And so what that means is um, it's basic because it corresponds to a population that is fully susceptible to disease. It's basically an untouched population, sort of a theoretical concept. Um, and reproduction means that it, it, it captures sort of how infectious the disease is, how, how likely is it to spread. So, so the formal definition of the basic reproduction number is the expected number of secondary infections that a primary infection, a single infection is expected to cause in a completely susceptible population. Now, of course, the basic reproduction number, it, 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 while, while that definition sounds like very clean and precise, all of a sudden, you know, it's very soon that all sorts of complexities start to enter in because, of course, the number of infections that a single infectious case causes depends on all sorts of different factors. It depends biologically on the virus itself, how contagious it is, what route of spread it has. Um, but it also depends on the community. How how frequently do people interact with one another? In a community where nobody ever interacts with anybody, the, the reproduction number is going to be zero because there's no possibility of spread if somebody becomes infected. So it's it even though it sort of takes on the the sound of this very fundamental quantity, 
it's variable. It, it changes from place to place, from infection to infection, um, and between different times. So, so really the key thing though, is that we think about the basic reproduction number as essentially the infectiousness of a disease in a completely susceptible population, but the population itself may different and differ in really important ways. And I've heard different epidemiologists say different things, but one of the things I heard is that the R0 is set at the beginning of the outbreak. It's useful only when it starts because then you do the non-pharmaceutical interventions and you start shutting things down and, and mitigating things and that changes it automatically. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's exactly right. We usually think of R0 as really being most relevant at the very beginning of an epidemic, because as soon as uh, people get, start gaining immunity and as soon as interventions start being put in place, um, then you start tweaking that reproduction number. And so, so the formal way that re we refer to that change is that we're no longer speaking about the basic reproduction number, but the effective reproduction number. And in mathematical texts, we, instead of writing it as an R with a little subscript zero, we write it with an R with a subscript T, where the T then can be any point in time, uh, whereas the zero corresponds to the zero point, the beginning of the infection. So, so exactly, your intuition is exactly mm -hmm. right. And that'll vary from region to region. Like, for example, even within a, a country, if you want to get precise, what's the RT for San Francisco versus New York versus someplace else or a different country. Exactly. And it can depend on everything from the age structure to how frequently people interact with each other mm -hmm. um, to how much immunity there is in the population. And when this all started in Wuhan, it was a Chinese New Year, which is when the majority of people travel. Right. And as Wuhan is one of the largest rail hubs, it seems like the r would increase with the increased travel. That's right. Yeah, it's certainly with the emergence of the virus, um, or at least its first detection in Wuhan, that um, when it when it gets started in a major hub like that, it makes the subsequent control a lot more difficult. We're going to go over a simple model, but before we do, the other two important things to define are start date and generation. So start date might be simple, but what's a good definition for a generation? Yeah, so what we call the generation interval is uh, it's the amount of time the expected amount of time between when I become infected and when somebody I infect becomes infected. So it's basically the amount of time between two separate infections. Now we can think about, we can compare different diseases to sort of get a rough handle on this. So um, generation time for SARS-CoV-2 uh, is, well, <laughs> there are a lot of different estimates out there, um, but it's probably on the order of five to seven days, something like that. Um, so I become infectious, then I have to incubate the virus, the virus starts to replicate in my system, and then I'm infectious for a couple of days. But if you sort of take the average of anybody I might have gone on to infect, they're probably going to get infected in that five to seven day period, with some amount of uncertainty, of course. Uh, different diseases have very different sorts of generation times. Um, so one clear example is HIV, for example, where you can become infected, and then you enter this very long period of um, low levels of virus in your body that often aren't particularly infectious, and then it rises again. Um, and so the generation interval can be on the order of much, much, much longer, even on the order of years, depending on the way in which the, uh, the virus is being controlled. Um, and so the reason why this is really important is because the reproduction number and the generation interval are sort of these key quantities that tell you how quickly, how explosively a virus might spread. Because you could have a virus that has a reproduction number of 10, which is really high, um, where a single infectious person is expected to infect 10 others. But if the generation interval is two years, 
then a single infectious person isn't going to infect those 10 others until two years have passed. And that's a much different scenario than if the reproduction number is 10 and the generation interval is a day, because that means that every day, 10 more people are going to be infected from each person who's been infected. And so you get this really explosive exponential spread. And so these two numbers together really characterize sort of how, how well that disease spreads and how quickly it spreads, really what that rate of exponential growth will be. Hmm. Well, that makes sense because with AIDS, which a lot of people don't realize is also a pandemic, absolutely has unfortunately killed 40 million people over the last 40 years. Yeah. And we feel bad for all those who are affected. But in the context of generation, it illustrates the point that a long generation time can mean that it takes a long time for a disease to play out. Exactly. It's just a different time scale than what we're dealing with right now. And the last thing is start date. Yeah. Yeah. So the start date, um, as, as you said, it, it, it does sound very simple, but also it's uh, it can be difficult to get a handle on because you can define the start date as the first time when uh, illness was introduced into a population. You know, say somebody travels from a location where there's illness spreading to a place where there isn't, and they introduce disease at some at some point in time. But of course, not everybody who travels from one place to the next and is infectious is going to create an epidemic. Um, and we can create, um, this is one of the places where modeling can be useful because you can think through sort of what's the probability that an infectious person could come to a completely susceptible population and actually cause an epidemic. Because with some probability, those infections are, he, that person is either going to recover before they infect anyone, or they might infect some people, but those people will recover before they infect anyone. And they're not really going to cause much of a problem. So you might need multiple introductions of infection uh, to really generate a proper epidemic. Um, and so that, that there becomes sort of a question of like, do you measure the first time somebody came and started spreading disease? Or is it really the first person who went on to spread a larger epidemic? And, and I think that second one is really the important one. But there are, you know, that, that can be really difficult to measure because, of course, we don't detect everyone who's infected. Um, a lot of people don't get tested. Um, but one of the ways that we can get at it is, is through two different types of models, one of which is just the standard epidemiological model case counts. And so you can extrapolate backward to a likely point in time when the first infectious person came on and caused that epidemic. Um, but even more precisely, we can use uh, what we call genomic epidemiology, where you sequence the genomes of the different pathogens. And since we know effectively at what rate the genome changes over time, at what rate it accumulates mutations, then we can look at how much variation, how much genetic variation there is in a population and backtrack and ask sort of when was the first time that there was a single common ancestor to all of the things that are circulating right now. Um, and so that gives us a rough sense in time of when the first introduction into a population might've been as well. Hmm. Yeah, I did some research on it and um, just going off of memory, it seems that they give time ranges and like, and it's, I think the latest thinking, and I don't know if I got a hold of the latest thinking, but it was that um, sometime in October and they gave like a two or, th or three, three week range, October of 2019. And they, they weren't certain, you know, they, they, they gave a range and a couple different papers gave slightly different ranges. And they were talking just about what you were talking about, just going back and being a detective and looking at the genomic um, probabilities and, bringing it back to one common ancestor and then putting an estimate from there. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. You know what I'm thinking about actually is that it's like very similar to like carbon dating, right? Where you, um, you, you have sort of artifacts of something that was, you know, around 
thousands of years ago. And you can look at these little uh, molecular changes within the carbon molecules, and you can get a rough estimate within some time range of when that artifact was made. Um, it's it's basically the same thing. It's, we're, we're using genetics instead of carbon decomposition, but it's, it's, it's exactly the same idea. Okay. What I did when I learned about the pandemic is I did a bunch of research, and I learned about the pandemic late late January 2020, and I did this model on February 4th, 2020, so it's still very early. I didn't know what r naught was. I didn't know any of these things, but I wanted to know how it would spread, and so I started getting down from newspaper articles down to journal articles, and I learned about r naught. I learned about generation. I learned about start date, and so I just decided, well, I'm going to make my own model, and uh, actually, we're going to present it here and shoot it up and I don't care. You can have no mercy because it was just super, super simple. But I just wanted to see just to do my own thing, just to see how it worked. So uh, is it true that you can make a simple model just using these three variables are not generation time and then also the start date? Yeah, you know, that's that's pretty much all you need. The the only other thing that's necessary is a sense of the, the population itself, sort of how how big is the population? And, but, but that's, those things give you everything that you need, basically. Yeah. Oh, I see. Huh. So even something, is it something very specific, like a male specific disease? And okay, your population's already been cut in half. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. I didn't think about that. Uh, okay. So um, I'm going to just describe something that's in a spreadsheet, but I'm going to try to do this and just make it concise and not get into too much detail. But I, I made a model based on, um, some of the things I was learning, um, I was reading Gabriel Leung, who was in Hong mm. Kong. He was involved in SARS-1 in 2003 and had a lot of experience there and you know, conveyed a lot of information and just, just read different things and pulled things together. I didn't know who Neil Ferguson was just yet. but um, So what I did is I created a spreadsheet. I put the, let's just say I put the date in the topmost cell in the upper left. And then the cell below that, I said, date plus eight. So that's for an eight day generation. And then I grabbed that and I pulled it down and I made a series, a time series to go as far as I needed. And then I gave it an R naught of three. So I started with one infected person and that would be in the, the next cell over to the right. I put a one and the cell below that I put a three. I actually did a, a multiplier times three and pulled that down. And that made a computation, which would allow it to spread at an R naught of three. And that became a large number. So with uh, start date generation and the R naught, I created a time series that took us out and showed us that worldwide, if we started on December 1st of 2019, that we would have covered the whole world population by May 17th of 2020. Cause We'd have gone beyond the, uh, what is it, 8.7 billion or 7.7 billion in the world. And what this model fails to do is it fails to trail off toward the top as you reach herd immunity. It has many limitations. It just gives an idea of numbers. Just for learning, I'm going to hold my model up and we're going to poke holes in it and see how what this can do and what it can't do. So what do you, and I've never asked an epidemiologist this, but I want you to tell me, you know, is it terrible? Is it useful? Yeah. Why or why not? And don't hold anything back because I'm. We're all about learning here. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what you've built is actually uh, really similar to some of the 
the building blocks of the models that we use all the time in infectious diseases. So you've, you've captured the important elements. You've actually already done one of the, the most important things that it's often overlooked, which is done the model simulation in terms of the generation interval rather than some other arbitrary span of time, like a week or a month or something like that. So capturing it in terms of the generation interval allows you to do exactly what you did, which is essentially capturing the exponential growth phase of the epidemic and seeing how quickly it grows. So when we're building epidemic models, if, if we're really just interested in that exponential growth phase, then, then a model like you've built is actually very helpful. Um, it gives us a sense of how quickly it'll spread and how many people it might infect in the early stages. So the, the key thing, you know, as you mentioned, the model doesn't trail off. It just sort of keeps exponentially infecting until all of a sudden everyone in the world is infected. Um, and I don't imagine that you meant to do this, but you've actually stumbled upon really one of the, one of the foundational concepts that, uh, that's at the very root of mathematical epidemiology. So um, I'm going to do a quick dive into history before we talk into the model a little bit. But in 1927, two Scottish biochemists and a chemist, and they also had some training in mathematics, clearly, essentially had the question of when you have an epidemic spreading, why doesn't it infect everyone? They've observed these big epidemics that spread, and and why you know why do some people go by unscathed? Is is it because like some people have underlying immunity, or is there something about the dynamics themselves that can prevent everyone from getting infected? So so to, to try to answer this question, they wrote down a mathematical model, and it's the basis of the mathematical models that we build today, uh, what we call the SIR model or the Susceptible Infectious Recovered Model. And so in doing so, essentially what they did is they showed that at the very beginning of an epidemic, you get this exponential growth. But the one thing that they included that they had to include to get this trailing off that that isn't yet captured in your model is, as I mentioned before, the population. So when you have an infection beginning to spread, uh, you have an infectious person who will infect are not others, basically three others in this case. But as the infection spreads, those people who have been already infected become immune, at least for some period of time. So they can't become reinfected. And so what that means is that at some point, an infectious person is going to run out of other susceptible people to infect. And that's going to happen at some point before everyone's been infected. Because if I'm just running around and I might have, you know, maybe I have 10 contacts in a given day. If the reproduction number is just three, you know, if as long as two thirds of them have already seen the disease, then I have a pretty good chance of not running into anybody who's susceptible to the disease. And so what ends up happening is, um, we really just have to add in one extra little term, which is that right now you're basically multiplying the reproduction number by the number of people who are infectious. But then you also have to multiply that by the proportion of the population who's still susceptible. And as that proportion declines and declines, then your rate of infection is going to slow and trail off. And that, that gives you the phenomenon of herd immunity, basically, where you run out of susceptible people in the population to infect, and then some number of them will remain uninfected. So if I added that as a formula in Excel then that would begin to trail off as I got towards the top. Exactly. Yeah. And then you'll get something that looks very much like the infectious disease models. Which would right. never happen. It would never right. go to hundred percent. It would go to like 70 or something like that, depending yeah. on the R or not. But I, I've seen that right. formula too. And um, I haven't done algebra in a really long time, but um, you know, I can sort mm -hmm. of work it. And um, I, I didn't actually, I used a calculator to do that for various R naughts. Um, but that's really interesting. So just a little trail, rabbit trail. If people reinfect, like with a variant, like P1 Brazil or P1351 South Africa, that's not like a 
it's not usually not baked into the SIR, right? Does that change it? Because it, it seems exactly like it, right. it could go higher than herd immunity. Now, okay, there's a lot of variables. Do we reinfect? There's still a debate about that. It looks like it's a it's a right. it's a hypothesis. It's kind of proving out. How does it change the SIR? Yeah. So essentially, what you end up with is a slightly different model, and it's it's still you can build it on the backbone of the SIR model. But then what we have is what we call an SIRS, or or sometimes just an SIS model, where you go from when you're thinking from the perspective of an individual, you go from susceptible to infectious, and then maybe you're recovered and immune for a short period of time, and then you go back to susceptibility. For some diseases, you don't even enter that phase of uh, immunity. So uh, certain sexually transmitted infections, the two most common ones, for example, gonorrhea and chlamydia, gonorrhea in particular, doesn't really give you immunity. You can get reinfected with that time after time after time after time. And so the way that modelers look at that is with an SIS model, where you can get reinfected multiple times. Now, the interesting thing there is, is you're right. Now you no longer have immunity to allow you to reach that herd immunity threshold. You can have people infected multiple times. And in this case, you don't even necessarily need to stop your simulation once you've reached the population of the world, because now you could infect everybody, but then all of those people could get infected multiple times as well. So you could have, in terms of the number of infections, it could be many times the population of the world. Now, of course, we still don't have you know the entire population of the world infected with any one infectious disease. So, so what is it there? That stops it, and this is this then gets into the differences between you know not everybody has the same behaviors, not everybody has the same sort of rates of contact, and so what you end up with is with these infectious diseases that are governed by this SIS dynamics with with no recovery, then there's a function that's based on the uh, the reproduction number and sort of the average duration of infection and the rate of contacts that you sort of level out at some steady state of amount of infection in the community. And that that steady state is sort of, it, it holds constant. So rather than having these big epidemic dynamics, you just sort of reach some constant level of infection that levels out. Mm-hmm. So when you do your models, do you do them all in one formula and it's a big algebraic looking thing and you kind of work it and then you come up with whatever you need or do a time series like I did where it kind of flows down and then you have dates and how do you do that? It depends It depends on what sort of model I'm building. So usually the first choice that I have to make is whether I'm going to do the model as a probabilistic model or as a deterministic model. And so what that means is Am I going to say that infections are random, that there's sort of some random probability of infecting maybe one or maybe 10 different people, and there's some probability distribution that governs that? Or is it going to be deterministic in which every person infects some predetermined number of others, uh, which is sort of what you have going here? Um, and so it's just sort of like you can just trace it forward and and you could you know run the model a thousand times, but as long as the parameters are the same, you're going to get exactly the same results out. And so... The first choice is that, and, and that depends on the sort of question we want to answer, but that then governs sort of how I set up the model. So with a probabilistic model, usually um, I actually do it in a very similar format to what you've just done, where um, I'll, I'll write it as computer code, but basically you end up just simulating a bunch of different epidemics and calculating the the, the average size and the distribution of the sizes and those kinds of things. Um, but it's exactly that. You just input the, the, the reproduction number and um, the infectiousness and the recovery period and these kinds of things. And then you just simulate a bunch of epidemics and see, and see sort of how it behaves and how it behaves when you change those parameter values. 
with a deterministic model, it's it's a little bit easier to write down the algebraic equations and do the mathematical analysis. And, and that's one of the great advantages of doing these deterministic type models where you get the same results every time. So usually I write those down either as algebraic equations or as ordinary differential equations. And then you can do some analysis on those to determine what's the final size of the epidemic, uh, how many people are infected, how long does it last? Um, and you can do a lot more sort of mathematical analyses on that kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah, I think just doing this model, it wasn't meant to predict anything. And I knew that it would just give an idea that, hey, this is, you know, a big deal, or this is just something that's going to be a little bit a smaller deal. But just seeing how exponential growth works and going from, like on March 6th, I had 100,000 infected. And then all of a sudden, at the end of March, there were you know, 2.8 million infected. <laughs> and then it quickly yeah, went, uh, it just accelerates like crazy. I mean, yeah. Is it true that this is to the power of three? <laughs> the yeah, exactly. It's like, um, right. It's each, each generation is like a, is like a power of three. It's like a cubed sort of, it's, um, it's just like squared is already nuts, but cubed is like <laughs> right. absolutely insane. What it yeah. starts to do, it goes from, okay, tens of thousands, then very shortly hundreds, then millions. And then you're over billions, you know, very quickly, exactly. you know? Well, yeah, and you know, some uh, people often describe exponential growth as explosive, and and actually, that's that's a very precise term because when you think about the dynamics of an explosion, right, you have atoms essentially or molecules that are splitting, and each of them is releasing some some amount of energy. But in releasing that amount of energy, it activates a bunch of other molecules that all release that same amount of energy. So if you have one molecule that then activates five others, that's essentially an epidemic process with a reproduction number of five, right? That's all you're saying. And so when you, so now you're just measuring the energy of the explosion, but it's exactly the same thing where it just blows up. And that's what we see with epidemics as well. So that was the lesson of this for me is just how quickly it could grow if nothing yeah. happened. So I was thinking about this with variants and, um, I want to ask, when you study physics and you see how a star is formed, it needs to hit critical mass in order to get started. It needs to have enough gravity and enough mass to get started. And I was thinking about variants, and it seems like the more infections we have concurrently, the more virus replications in a population, which might help a variant come more easily. So I want to ask if variant introductions can also trend towards exponential growth, mean bending the curve up for a period. So in other words, if you have three major variants today. Now this is, I'm not going to say we have three major variants today. Uh, this is just a hypothetical. And then it, let's say it's a two week generation for this to happen. Then you have nine, variants, you know, are not three, then you have nine variants. And then you have in two weeks, you have 27 and it only goes for six weeks because that's how a wave works. Do you think it's possible that we could get larger numbers of variants being introduced if we get to some really large number of infections concurrently? Yeah, so I think, I mean, the short answer is yes. The more infections we have spreading, the more variants we're going to see emerging. Um, and I think that's you know, sort of what we're beginning to see now, where first there were you know, a handful of variants that we were concerned about, and now um, there are some more. And it's, it's unclear to what extent some of these variants are actually concerning versus are just the random mutations of the virus that are just behaving as viruses do and may not actually be giving the virus any real advantage over its competitors. Um, but nevertheless, you know, you're right. We are seeing a lot more variants, whether or not they're especially concerning. Um, and that has to do exactly with, with how much virus there is in the population. So the more there is spreading, the more opportunities it has to mutate, to change, to evolve. 
And then sometimes, you know, it will get lucky. It will um, find a way to get around the immune system or it will find a way to become more infectious. And that's when the variants really become concerning. So that's the key thing, though, is that for the virus to not only mutate, but to mutate in ways that are advantageous to it, that cause it to spread better, that's, that's a much more difficult problem to solve. So while we will continue getting variants of all sorts, and the rate at which those variants emerge will be directly related to how much virus is circulating in the population, whether or not those variants actually lead to a greater amount of spread depends to a huge amount on the interaction between the virus and the human body. And there may only be a certain number of ways that the virus can change to actually make it more infectious, to actually make it evade the immune system. There might only be a couple of particular strategies that it can evolve that allow it to do that. And the virus just has to find those on its own. And it might find it in a couple of different ways. There might be multiple different places that evolve sort of similar types of mutations. It's what we call convergent evolution, where multiple unrelated viruses still evolve. Right, the same that's strategy. happening right now. It's exactly, easy. right. Um, and so, but what we end up with is, you know, we have these variants emerging, but at some point, maybe it's not guaranteed, but but it, it could be that it's sort of exhausted the, its, its possibilities more or less and um, can no longer really evolve without really going a really fundamental restructure and reshift, essentially becoming a different virus, essentially becoming what we then call a different strain rather than just a variant. Um, yeah, another thing about this is that in, you know, I'm thinking about uh, UK, like B117, US, Brazil, P1, and South Africa. And at least a couple of those, uh, those happen in places that didn't lock down very well. Like, you know, UK didn't, you know, in some, some people's opinion, didn't lock down that well. Brazil did, didn't lock down that well. And Brazil has a much larger population. But it seemed like that created an opportunity to get a real critical mass of people and a lot of viral replication, not only within multiple people, but within each person, you know, billions of replications at, at peak infectiousness. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, you're right. The, again, like back to that same principle that there's, um, the more spread there is, the more opportunities there are for a variant to emerge. Now, the, the key extra bit of information there is that, um, to notice you have a variant, not only do you need the variant, but you also need the infrastructure to be able to detect it. Um, and so part of what we saw, for example, in the UK was not just that there was a lot of spread happening in the UK, but also the UK has been sequencing tons and tons and tons of its viral samples, um, far more than any other country that I'm aware of, certainly much more than the United States. So we may well have had other variants spreading at the same time that the variants in the UK were emerging, um, but we just wouldn't have noticed them as quickly. And so it makes it sound like um, the variants are emerging there. And you know, this is this is another interesting point. I'm I'm really interested in in the in the history of epidemiology as well. And and a very similar thing happened in 1918, not to do with variants, but um, do you know what the 1918 flu is, is sometimes called? It's um, yeah, the the Spanish flu. Um, so they, they've called it the Spanish flu epidemic. You know, why is it the Spanish flu? Well, at the time, you know, the, the public consciousness was that the disease was emerging in Spain, that it was really affecting Spain badly. But, but what actually happened was at that point in the war, Spain was neutral. And so they had a free press. And so they were reporting on the virus a lot more freely than other countries. And so it seemed like Spain had a much higher burden of disease when in fact, it was just that they were reporting more on it. And I think the same sort of thing is arising here. Um, where UK, for example, had a lot of sequencing, was able to report on it very quickly. And so it seems like the UK variant, when in fact, 
who knows? It could have started somewhere else, and it's just that they caught it, so they get it. They get the name, unfortunately, which is why we should use <clears throat> B one one seven as much as we can. It's more more polite. Yeah, exactly, you know, it, exactly. Very very good of them to catch it, and you know we wouldn't have even probably known about variants if they weren't doing the sequencing. We'd just be getting hit and not knowing why or where or what, and so. It seems like if you want to attack something, like I've studied horticulture and used to have licenses for different things. So if you want to get at like a, a landscape pest, you have to learn its everything about it and its life cycle, when it hatches. And within that, you'll probably find a weakness by which you can attack it and take it out. And that's what I think science and, and discovery can do for SARS-CoV-2. And so that's why I like studying this stuff. And not that I'm going to come up with anything, but to the extent that we can become educated, maybe we can live better lives, protect ourselves more easily with less effort and th things of that nature. Yeah, that's exactly it. Th now there's an interesting case study. You mentioned Manaus, Brazil earlier, and we actually had two papers on tap that we could uh, potentially just, you know, go over. We don't have t uh, enough time to fully go into them, but um, there's one from Lancet and one from Science Magazine. Actually sent you the one from the Lancet, but we could go over either because I have them both in front of me. Yeah. So just as background for the audience, is that COVID-19 ripped through uh, this this um, city in the heart of the Amazon, Brazil, where there's all these tributaries feeding the Amazon and central plate, uh, trading place. And it seemed like they'd reached herd immunity. And they did this through serial studies and gathered other other, other evidence. And so epidemiologists were quite surprised, as was everybody, to see it get hit really hard again in January because we thought they had reached herd immunity. And so there's two papers on this, and it was been written up extensively. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so it, this was really a mystery that uh, we as a community of epidemiologists were trying to make sense of. And so the first thing that we do when presented with this kind of information, with this sort of paradox, right, where we have a lot of spread happening in a place where it shouldn't be happening, then the first thing we think we need to do is think about all of the different reasons why this could be the case. So list going down is first, maybe immunity to COVID-19 in general just doesn't last that long. They were hit very hard, but they were also hit relatively early. And so maybe they're among the first to just see that tailing edge of immunity and maybe everywhere else is due for another one of these epidemics as well. Second, maybe there was a big shift in the population. Um, you know, Manaus is, uh, is a big trading area. Um, it's really a central hub on the Amazon River. And so maybe there's enough mixing, enough people have left and new people have come in to sort of increase the number of susceptible people in the population. So the people we're measuring now aren't the same ones we were measuring before. Or maybe there's a variant spreading. Maybe there's a variant that's getting around the immune system and causing reinfections. And so those are really the, the, the hypotheses that we went in trying to, trying to understand. And that's where, for example, a lot of the genetic sequencing, some of which is described in these articles you've just mentioned, uh, really came in handy because it showed that the, the virus that was spreading in Manaus at the time was sufficiently distantly related to the other things that had been spreading, that there may be something concerning about it. And then they went on and did follow-up studies and showed that, yes, in fact, um, within within various labs that have been studying these mutations, it looks like some of the mutations that this virus has picked up have been associated with reduced antibody response, has been a, to get around that immunity. Um, and so all of these different hypotheses were possible, but really over time, these different levels of evidence started to converge and suggest that this is truly a new variant, one that can get around immunity. Um, now, 
variants that escape immunity are really interesting because they're they're different than ones. So B117 seems to be somewhat different. It it doesn't seem to escape immunity so much as it just is more infectious in general at baseline. So that means that when B117 comes into a population with a non-B117 variant, it's going to spread more easily. It's going to slowly overtake things. And, and that's what we've seen time and time again in many different countries where B117 has really sort of taken over the lineages of SARS-CoV-2 that are spreading. The variants that escape immunity, um, like the ones that were first detected in Manaus, are a little bit different because they might be competing against uh, B117 or just a, you know one of the old regular SARS-CoV-2 viruses. But if they're in a totally susceptible population, they're not going to have any advantage. They're just as infectious as long as everybody is susceptible and nobody's been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 before. The places where the variants like in Manaus have really have the advantage is in places where there already has been a lot of spread because then they can come in and sort of be an opportunistic infection because um, the, that susceptibility is keeping out the other variants. It's, it's keeping out the other types of SARS-CoV-2 that can't escape immunity, but they can take advantage of that population and they can reinfect it. And so you end up with these different sort of uh, patterns of spread as well, where you have a lot more prevalence of these variants in places that have already seen a lot of spread. So that's another way from the epidemiological data that we can identify sort of what's going on with these variants. Is it more infectious or is it immune escape? Well, we can compare the populations where they're spreading. We can compare how much infection those populations have seen before. And depending on which variants are spreading there, then that could give us a little bit of hint as to which, you know, it's sort of what strategy this virus is using to reinfect that population. Hmm. So if we're studying Manaus and we're doing one of my simple models, guess we, and let, let's say it's a new, a new variant that, you know, population's naive. Do we start the model just like we did? And maybe the RNA increases from, let's say it's three and it's 40% more transmissible. Now it's 4.2. And you start yep. your curve. Will that be fairly accurate, at least through the mid part of the curve for you? Yeah. Family? Yeah. For the, for the upswing, that's, that's exactly it. Oh yeah. Um, that's what it would look like. That's useful to know. <clears throat> um, and, yeah. and that's true though. So like if the R naught is three, like for B117 and they, it's, um, 40% more transmissible as, as the, the, you know, right. er, early data are showing. So does that show an R naught of, of, uh, 4.2? Yeah, that's, that's, that's roughly right. Yeah. Just checking my math there. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's <laughs> good to yeah. know. Which is pretty, pretty crazy, right? Like that's, that's quite a bit you yeah, know, in terms you of know, this exponential growth. Like you said, the difference between cube and square and uh, now four is, is very different. Oh, yeah. so that's like acceleration on top of acceleration. You study that's that right. in car crashes. Yeah. It gets like yeah. 55 to 65 is a huge difference in deadliness. Whereas 55, you only went up like, you know, however many percent, whatever. Right. But you really the lethality of that collision is, is much, much right. higher. Oh, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. It's just fascinating to study these things. Well, that's all we have time for. Dr. Kistler, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on and explaining these things. I've been wondering about these things for a year now, more than a year, and I finally get the answers. So thank you so much. Um, hey, maybe we can have you on again and have you work out one of these problems real time. Great. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. As an end note, uh, today's April 5th, and the previous recording with Dr. Kissel was recorded on March 9th of 2021. And so it took a while to get everything set up. You know, I've got a day job and trying to keep up with that. And then I had to set up everything relating to the back end and the RSS feed. So it took a while. 
So this is going to go out, looks like, uh, today, and that'll be uh, three to four weeks late. So uh, everything else on here should be coming out in much quicker order. So if you like the program, uh, please keep listening. Thanks.